0: The first one is not really a technical control that you can deploy. It really has to do with not putting a target on your back. Most commonly, especially during things like bull markets where prices are running up, you know, maybe sometimes very, very wild numbers, NFT prices are running, cryptocurrencies running, getting very, very expensive, or there's like huge gains happening, people tend to brag. And when they do so, the
1: criminals take notice. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Nick Prococo, Chief Security Officer at Kraken, who is also in charge of a lot of the aspects of technology over there as well. Kraken is a cryptocurrency exchange for those who don't know. I brought Nick onto the show specifically because I'm a complete novice when it comes to the security aspects of cryptocurrency and NFTs. I have honestly hesitated getting into those worlds at all because I have not understood the full implications, but thanks to Nick, I'm learning a lot about the subject. I think I'll probably be signing up and investing a bit into crypto, even if just to play a bit in that fascinating world. So sit back and listen to some wisdom and some insight into the security of cryptocurrency and NFTs. Nick, thank you so much for coming on down to The Ranch. Thanks for having me, Alan. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job?
0: Yeah, so I'm um, Chief Security Officer at Kraken. I started my career in cybersecurity or information security, whatever it was called back then, right. um, in the mid late 90s. So I worked at companies such as that you may be familiar with, like Internet Security Systems, VeriSign. Um, I worked at Trustwave for about 11 years. I ran Spider Labs there. And then after being in the security industry for almost 20 years, I took a shift and jumped into more of the chief security officer role. I met a couple of companies and I'm at Kraken today. Kraken is a global cryptocurrency exchange. We have clients in 190 different countries, 8 million of those clients, and we have nearly 3000 Krakenites, which is what we call our employees. It is our mission to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency, so really that the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. I love it. So how about what you actually do at Kraken, then? A little bit about the day job. Yeah. So, um, so my title is Chief Security Officer. It's a little bit misleading because my scope is actually quite wider than that. I also am responsible for IT. I'm also responsible for engineering and then also our technical operations group which is a combination of things like technical project management incident management release management and and change management which has a lot of intertwining between security IT and engineering so it's all sort of all boiled together
1: yeah it's the it's the devsecops world right it's all it's all one mishmash now it's great to see one person running all that though it's nice to have all of those things under one umbrella that's fantastic you're you're managing the entire nerd contingency of the krakenites is what i'm hearing <laughs> yeah sounds like it all right so the first thing that comes to mind for me when we talk about cryptocurrency and security, and I should I should pause here and say for my listeners, I know very little about cryptocurrency to begin with. I, I don't own any. I did once upon a time have one Bitcoin back when one Bitcoin was free. I've since lost that hard drive. And I know next to nothing, uh even less than nothing, about actually securing crypto and how that works. So so what came to mind for me when we first started talking about this idea of doing this on a show was i was thinking back to the mount gox incident i think the the hackers were actually in their network as early as 2011 and I think it was late 2013, early 2014 when the big theft occurred. And at the time, Mt. Gox was handling, I think, 70% of all Bitcoin transactions at the time f- worldwide. And the attackers got a grand total of uh, 740,000 Bitcoins from the customers and another 100,000 from the Mt. Gox guys themselves, which at the time was 460 million. And if I did my math right, would be 34 billion by today's standards. So that whole incident occurred and that freaked a lot of people out and caused a lot of people to have fear about crypto. You've obviously got a take on this and and I want to hear the story and the background that you know about it, but but I also want to point out like I'm expecting in this story to hear, you know, whenever there's a big breach in the industry, all of us CISOs tend to look at how that breach occurred and what occurred and we tend to tighten up our own shops and you know like every public breach is a chance for all of us to improve our game and I'm guessing it's that kind of story, right? Yeah, it certainly is and in fact
0: the roots of Kraken, sort of the you know the, the acceleration or sort of the, the launch of Kraken has a lot to do with the Mt. Gox hack. Not that we were involved with that in any way, as far as like it wasn't our business, but our founder and CEO, Jesse Powell, when that attack happened, he knew the people involved at Mt. Gox and he actually jumped on a plane and flew out to Tokyo to help them deal with the breach investigation and help them pick up the pieces. And he learned a great deal from that. Really, what he came away from that experience is he realized that the entire cryptocurrency ecosystem wasn't as secure as it needed to be. If it was going to succeed, if it was going to, be to lead to global adoption, that a lot more security had to be put in place in order for that to be possible. And he set off a way to create a secure way for clients, for anybody who really wants to, to on-ramp and off-ramp into the crypto ecosystem. When we talk about on-ramping and off-ramping, on-ramping is basically the ability for you to send traditional cash, U.S. dollars, euros, British pounds into a cryptocurrency exchange. Convert it to Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever cryptocurrency you want to convert it to. Trade it, uh, maybe send it someplace else like like a cryptocurrency wallet or send cryptocurrency into an exchange and trade it for U.S. dollars or euros or Swiss francs, whatever you're interested in and then move it off of an exchange into a bank account. And that's okay. essentially what cryptocurrency exchange does. And he he set off to build and to grow the, a business around doing this in a highly
1: secure way. I like that a lot. So he got to learn from their mistakes, and it created a vision that caused him to, to sort of start a whole new effort around that. So we learned from the lesson. We've got a new exchange. We've got new exchanges. You guys are obviously kind of highly security focused in, in your realm in this. And then we talk about some of the sort of the details of crypto cybersecurity and and again not knowing a whole lot I've got, I've got these little stories and anecdotes in my head right the Mount Gox breach right the other one that came up for me was when Colonial Pipeline got ransomware, the FBI was able to recover, I believe it was 2.3 million in the 2021 ransomware attack. And they did it by seizing a crypto wallet. And I, I can't pronounce the name, Revel, Revil, R-Evil, Re, 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 whatever the, the bad guys were. It was one of their crypto wallets. And obviously it wasn't the full amount involved, but, but it was a substantial portion of the ransomware recovered by the FBI who pounced on and seized a wallet. Right. And I thought part of the whole point of cryptocurrency was this whole anonymity, the, the, the untraceability and trackability. And obviously there's traceability, but you can't, you know, uh, attribution, I guess is lacking in my mind from the whole blockchain physics. So I was really surprised that the FBI was able to pull that off and how they pulled that off. And so could you walk us through the physics of, you know, how, how was the wallet identified? How was the wallet seized? Like how how could that work, right? Because I I thought criminality was easy to get away with, I guess basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's
0: an often a misconception that's portrayed by the media. They often talk about how cryptocurrency is is used by criminals because they can evade surveillance and they can do things and no one knows what they're doing with it. That really isn't the case. The entire core piece of crypto is that it is. The blockchain itself is a public ledger. When you're especially when you're talking about Bitcoin, you you have the ability to look at that ledger and know which wallets are sending what amount of cryptocurrency to another wallet. Now the person's name isn't on there, so it doesn't say Nick's Bitcoin wallet sent to Bitcoin to to Alan's Bitcoin wallet. That's not what happens, but all of the, the addresses you can map these out and organizations like the FBI, or even there are are organizations out there that help businesses do analysis to understand where the funds are actually going. And so what happens in the case of like a a ransomware attack, when ransomware gets on a system, there's a pop-up that says, oh, you've got ransomware, we've encrypted all your files. And if you don't pay us five Bitcoin, we are going to delete the hard drive of this computer. And in order to recover your files, you actually have to send money to an address um, or send Bitcoin to an address. And it'll actually show you like, you know, here's the address. And it looks like a string of numbers and and letters. That's a unique address that maps to a wallet on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so that identifier is right there, clear as day. That's the criminal's wallet that you're sending those funds to. And so if you have enough of those... those identifiers, and you're you're able to see where that those funds are flowing to. The FBI can then track and see where these funds are also going to after that. And so, what often happens is the criminals will collect a bunch of ransom payments, and they'll have to try to move them someplace else to try to exchange them into something else. Maybe it's maybe it's cash, it's fiat currency, or cash, or you know, like U.S. dollars or British pounds or something like that. Or they might be trying to exchange them for other cryptocurrencies. And so the, the, the FBI and other you know investigation groups can easily see where these funds are flowing. And when it goes someplace that they actually have ability to contact somebody, or it goes someplace where they, they're able to, to seize those assets, they can, they can do so. It's, they, can, they can see it clear as day where those funds are moving
1: on the blockchain. I get it. So yeah, I knew I knew the ledger aspects of it, but the attribution piece was difficult for me to, to, to get a hold of. But what you're basically saying is you don't necessarily need that name attribution because you can see every in and out from a given wallet for all perpetuity, right? So I think I heard a story a while back of one of the bad guys was using a wallet, did a bunch of stuff, a bunch of cryptocurrency went into that wallet, and then that wallet sat idle for like 10 years or something. And then pop back up and everyone knew, oh, that's those same bad guys still. Like yep. even 10 years later, they still know, oh, you're the ones who heisted the money from blah, blah. Exactly. I mean, even, you
0: know, I mean, you could think Bitcoin will probably be around for thousands of years. It, it, you, could, you, could, you could have a compromise, right? Someone steals a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and it sits in a wallet idle for a couple of centuries. You can imagine if someone starts to, to move that or use that or transfer that, people are going to know, right? It's, it's right. Just like this wallet that is is marked as a has as a wallet that has stolen assets, and every yep. cryptocurrency exchange knows what that wallet is. Anybody who's monitoring things in the crypto ecosystem knows what that wallet is. And the moment that even a fraction of a Bitcoin decides to move, everybody's going to
1: notice it. Interesting. Yeah. So, so what are the main security challenges facing the crypto ecosystems? If we have these wallets readily uh, ledgered, as it were, what are the main challenges that you guys face? Yeah, I think. Many people, you know, just you know, in general, who start
0: playing a part in the crypto ecosystem, they have to learn some lessons, right? They learn that you know th- there is no reversing you know transactions in the crypto ecosystem. In the traditional banking sense, if my bank account somehow was compromised and someone transferred ten thousand dollars out of my bank account to someplace else. You call up your bank and you're like, hey, this wasn't me. There's ways that they can give you that money back. Same thing with credit cards, right? When you're when you're a consumer of a credit card, if someone steals your credit card number and they rack up a, you know, a bunch of charges at an electronic store, you call up one eight hundred visa and you 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 get them to reverse the charges. But in the in the cryptocurrency world, that doesn't exist. So there's no intermediaries that are required to settle transactions. If I want to send you a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, it's between you and I there isn't, right. the does not have to go through an exchange. It doesn't have to go through any other organization. If I'm sending you a million dollars worth of Bitcoin and I make a typo in the address that I'm sending it to, that's it. <laughs> it, it Somebody it, else got a million bucks. Exactly. Or no yeah. one did, right? No one, right. May, right. it may be a wallet that doesn't even exist or hasn't existed yet. So that type of thing can happen. So there are no real safety nets there. So basically what's important from a security standpoint, when operated in the crypto ecosystem is that you have to understand that what your responsibility is as a user whether it's you as personally as an end user or you as a business that's operated in the crypto ecosystem you have to protect you know there's there's all the things you have to do to protect one not making mistakes that's important not being social engineered that's important but also mm-hmm. the key management that goes around protecting those th- those private keys that are used to sign those transactions Very similar to sometimes when you're thinking about the paradigm and like what it relates to for someone who's not encrypted you probably have used PGP Of course you have a you have, when you use PGP you have a you have a public key that you share with people so that when they send you email they can encrypt something that you can decrypt with your private key and when you, you know, when you send things to people you know you're you're signing that message and you're encrypting it with their public key Very similar it's not exactly the same but if someone gets a hold of your private key, they can read all the email that's being sent to you in an encrypted way. Similarly, in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, if someone gets a hold of your private key, they can move your funds wherever they want. And so yep. there's, a, there's a lot of bad lessons <laughs> that have been learned by people in businesses around this, which is um, which is extremely important for them to learn.
1: Yeah, I've heard stories of people storing their keys in the clear and getting popped that way and finding the hard way that they no longer had any Bitcoin at all. Yep. That has
0: happened historically. I've known people who have stored their keys and cloud drives with no passwords on their, on their wallets. I mean, this was like early days. Most right. people today that operate today will do things. They will maybe keep a lot of their funds on a reputable, secure cryptocurrency exchange if they're not, right. if they're not using mass amounts and their, their personal security value or trust that they're putting in themselves to do this in the right way isn't mm-hmm. quite there. And then there's other people that you know do things like store their crypto or store their private keys for their crypto wallets on things called hardware wallets, which are really yeah. like air-gapped devices that you never store on a computer. Probably the worst thing you can do today is to keep all of your funds on the laptop, right? All the keys that you, that you have for all of your funds on a laptop that's connected right. to the internet because as soon as you get malware or something happens on that computer, it's gone. Those keys are going to get stolen and they're going to get transferred. And you're going to look at your balance and it's going to be zero within minutes.
1: Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. So, what can retail investors do? I've got a lot of friends that are that are pretty serious crypto investors, and we've talked a little bit about key management. But what else is there to protect, you know, the cryptocurrencies? And, and while we're at it, let's talk about NFTs a little bit too, right? Retail investors are getting heavy into NFTs. I've got friends invested there as well. Yep. What is the good advice for a retail investor to protect these things?
0: The first one is not really a technical control that you can employ. Um, it really has to do with putting a target on your back. Most mm-hmm. commonly, especially during things like bull markets where prices are running up, you know, maybe sometimes like very, very wild numbers, NFT prices are running way up, Cryptocurrency is running, getting very, very expensive, or there's like huge gains happening. People tend to brag when they brag on social media. They'll be like, oh, I just bought this NFT. It went from $500 and now it's worth $500,000, right? You know, they, you know, they brag about it. They display their NFTs. And, and this is sort of the conundrum I think the people face is that they want to display their NFTs. It's art. In in many cases, when they're dealing with you know like the current sort of iteration of how people use NFTs today, they want to display it, they want to share it, they want to show them off. And when they do so, the criminals take notice. And it's not mm-hmm. difficult for criminals to figure out who you are. They're not not very difficult for criminals to figure out your phone number, your email address, maybe even your home address. And they go off and they do things like social engineering attack individuals. And almost every single day, we see this. We see individuals that say. Oh, I was in an NFT projects or collections discord group. And some people said they were doing some things and they offered to help me. And I'm very new at this. And then they asked me for click in MetaMask, which is a very popular NFT wallet that runs as a browser extension in Chrome. They asked me to click on some things and give them a bunch of words. I don't really know what they were, but I gave them to them. And sure enough, those are the seed words to their wallet that they gave to the criminals. And within just two minutes, all their NFTs, all their crypto, everything that they have there is completely gone. And so, mm. so bragging online about how much crypto you have, you know, showing off these very expensive NFT collections, if you're, if you're not extremely sound in your own personal security, you could run into some serious trouble. And so that's what sort of the next tip is you know, taking your personal security seriously. So things as basic as strong, complex, unique passwords, use a password manager for all of your accounts, making sure that you follow the instructions how you set up your hardware wallets, or how you set up your software wallets, taking those instructions and taking all of the warnings and the things that they you should do to protect you know when you protect your assets is extremely important. I hear a lot a lot of people that go, "Oh, they asked me to write down twenty four seed words, I just skipped it, I don't care, and they just skip past it, and then they run into problems if they're if that wallet gets damaged or lost or destroyed or mm-hmm. something like that. they can't recover either and so that's a that's a big piece is taking your personal security seriously. Understanding how to use the tools that are part of this ecosystem in the best way you can are really important, even outside of other other security risks that you you might think about. Most of the time that we see attacks against individuals, they're due to you know poor hygiene around personal security, them bragging online about having a lot of crypto, and then falling for, for phishing or social engineering or something that exposes access to their wallets.
1: In one sense, same old security problems as always, but in another sense, I think much higher on the old likelihood and impact scale. The impact is through the roof in some cases. And likelihood, to your point, if you make yourself a target, is pretty high as well. That's that's yeah. interesting stuff. And to your point, NFTs are art. What are you going to do with them? Show them off, right? I got a friend who's printed coasters, right? Like, here's my NFTs. So interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, let's talk about companies. Let's pivot from retail investors to companies. I know that there's a bunch of companies that are holding Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. KPMG has announced that they're doing it. Tesla, I think, has said they've got cryptocurrency. What should these guys be doing that's different from what the retailers are doing?
0: Yeah, I mean as as a retailer, for the most part, your own personal bank. And when you're talking about you know crypto at entities like a KPMG or a Tesla, they're now becoming their own bank. and so there are there's very mm-hmm. big differences there, right? You know when it's your individual, you know it's on you, but when it's a business, it may be on multiple people. Hopefully, someone like Tesla is holding Bitcoin they didn't just tell one of the employees to go buy a bunch of Bitcoin and store it on a wallet that they keep in a safe someplace. right? Hopefully that's not the case. I don't know (laughs) the nuances there and how Tesla's Tesla's managing this, but hopefully that's not what happens. But I do know that that has happened at other companies where the CEO of a company has said, let's buy a bunch of Bitcoin. And then they, they asked their technology group or their security team to go figure out how to do it and figure out how to secure it. And when you get to like higher levels of value, you know, if it's tens of millions or tens of billions of dollars of, of cryptocurrency, having the private keys on one retail hardware wallet that you sort of keep in a drawer someplace or keep in a safe right. in an office, that becomes very risky because there are things that can happen, right? The seed words can get exposed, the wallet can get damaged, and there's no backups. There's a whole bunch of things that come into play there. So having more of an enterprise relationship with an exchange or a custody provider is extremely important when it comes to that because you're going to want to have to have the ability for for multiple accessors on the account you're going to want to have have controls in place so that one person can't just go and move all the assets someplace else and so that's where companies need to think about what are the policies internally what are the notifications who do you want to approve the moving of the assets and then how do you audit that and how do you how do you control what controls do you have in place to make sure that a single person in the
1: company can't just decide one day to move all the Bitcoin to their personal wallet and disappear. It's it's almost similar. Like you said, it's it's a bank metaphor is a really good way to put it because I'm thinking of all the controls in place just for regular money, right? I mean, yep. every person of a certain rank has a certain amount of spending approval in a given company and only certain people have access to the big funds and and only certain people are authorized to transfer funds, et cetera, et cetera. In theory, there's really good personnel controls in place as well. And, and I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, an accounts payable person who got popped and sent money to a, a bad entity posing as a real entity. And, and yep. you know, at the time, way too high a spending authority to begin with. That was looked at and scrutinized and those rules were changed. You know, I've been in companies where various various efforts of that sort happened, not crypto, but very similar. And that actually brings me to this question, which is when it comes to companies securing their monies, their physical monies, securing their practices, let's reverse the question completely here. What can we learn outside of the crypto security world from inside the security crypto world that might benefit us outside. In other words, lessons learned for securing cryptocurrency that could apply here to whatever standard fiat currency management or personnel management or whatever it might be. To your point, you know, having a certain number of people and not having it be just one, not having it be too many, you know, what are are some of the lessons there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of when you're dealing with moving of funds within organizations, especially at like when you're talking about large value, in the cryptocurrency world have to do with requiring multiple people to do things. And it's not just like multiple people clicking a button and saying, yes, that's, you know, I approve or multiple people replying to an email and saying they approve. In the, in the cryptocurrency world, there's this concept of, of multisig, which in, in, the, in the Bitcoin sense re- means that in order to move funds, it has to be signed by multiple keys, essentially, in order to move funds and sign that transaction. And so, you know, so the establishment of those types of practices is could be could be portable to other industries as well. And so, there's a sense of like non-repudiation. So the sense of if you have seven people that can possibly approve something within your business, and you say, well, I require three, that you're doing so in a in a, in a way that's can be cryptographically proven or mathematically proven, rather than just saying, well, well, maybe that was Tommy that clicked on that link, or maybe it was Sally that approved that transaction. You actually know that. It had to have been the physical thing that that person has or physical thing that those five people have had to sign that transaction or sign that approval in order to move something forward technically. So that's something that you know, I've learned you know, in, in the cryptocurrency world, fundamental to how, how crypto works in many blockchains to where that has that capability to where you know, it's not just one person can't act alone. You need multiple people to participate. And you need to you, physical proof or cryptographic proof that that person actually signed that transaction and, and, and said that they want to vote or, or say that they want to move this. Whatever that task is that needs that approval, they want to move that forward. And you often don't see that in other, in other industries. And that's where some people, you know, some industries get in trouble where they say, well, we got three approvals and it turned out it was an accounts payables person's email account that was compromised. And the accounts payable person just replied and said, yep, this is approved, process the transaction. And it wasn't them. It was the attacker instead.
1: Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. So single single points of failure bad, and and attribution good, right? Yeah. So yeah. all right, these are these are great practices. Any other tips for us? Any last thoughts on securing cryptocurrency, securing the world based on the uh, advice and guidance of crypto? Any any parting thoughts on this concept? I got one final question for you after that,
0: but yeah, I mean, one of the things actually almost reverse the question: What can cryptocurrency learn from other industries? From what I've experienced, and I've been in the I guess I would say I've been in the cryptocurrency industry for about four years. And what I've experienced and observed is that there's a lot of crypto companies that go from an idea, like literally fresh idea, to having millions of users overnight, and then handling no money to handling tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars overnight. Many times, the security fundamentals that traditional businesses with high levels of maturity around security would find, you know, just sort of, Commonplace, right? They they just it's just normal, natural hygiene. And many cryptocurrency companies or crypto companies don't do that. Things like software security practices are often not are sort of an afterthought in many cases. Now that's changing a bit as as companies have evolved and become more mature. But there's always companies that pop up that you may hear about where it's this brand new DeFi project and they, they had flaws in their smart contracts which led to a massive heist of, of, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And many times that comes down to applying software security principles and doing code reviews and doing, doing things instead of running as fast as they possibly can and then running into trouble. That, that's a big piece. I think, you know, the, the cryptocurrency industry can continuously learn more from, from industries outside of the crypto industry that's been doing this for, you know, for, for many decades versus just a decade or, or less.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really good point. I've got a a friend named Chris Castaldo who's written a book for um, cybersecurity for startups specifically to try to tackle that phenomenon, right? In the startup world, because it's not just crypto startups, right? It's all kinds of startups that, if they if they hit that wave of popular success, are suddenly their infrastructure is significantly more robust than the security practices that are that that were slowly plotting towards growth of that sort, right? Like it's a common phenomenon in the in the successful startup world to get ahead of your own security skis, right? All right, excellent advice. So listen, Nick Prakoko, I've got one last question for you I ask every guest, which is what have you personally learned outside of cybersecurity that you found to be beneficial in cybersecurity? So that's a great question. I think what what many people don't know about me is that I
0: spent a great deal of time in my youth and sort of in my 20s involved with music. So I played saxophone basically almost every single day from when I was about age nine to, to my early 20s. And so one thing I've, I've realized, like I think later in life, is that in music, you're constantly seeing patterns. and Your brain yeah. gets very attuned to seeing patterns and sometimes at very high speeds, right? You might be reading music that's very complicated and you have to read it at very high speeds and very fast tempos. And I think that helped me in cybersecurity later in life, especially when doing things like looking for patterns when you're doing a forensic investigation reviewing log files and looking for something that stands out and you don't have you know all the time in the world to, to to sit there and read everything line by line, sometimes you have to scroll through things rather quickly. And the ability to pick out those patterns quickly, I think, was because I was involved with music for so long in my life.
1: Oh, that is a fantastic answer to that question. I love it saxophone as pattern recognition training tool that's that's phenomenal alright well Nick thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch thank you listeners y'all be good now